Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Grammy Award winner soprano Melissa Gibbons, an assistant professor of music at Pomona. Welcome, Hi. Melissa. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us here in Zoom land. Absolutely. Pleasure. So how are you adjusting to life in the time of plague <laughs> and the well, time of Zoom? Yeah, inter- <laughs> <laughs> well, personally, you know, it's, I've always been kind of a hermit. So this is, I've been training for this my entire life. But <laughs> in terms of the teaching, it's, uh, I, I miss the interaction of teaching and voice teaching is so intimate. And so there's just so much you have to see and hear in real time. So We've been just trying to figure out various ways to make Zoom voice lessons work and the best way is to kind of not do them on Zoom <laughs> and have them record and <laughs> be recording. I listen to it, yeah. send them a recording. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and then we visit by Zoom because, you know, part of the, yeah. you know, keeping the relationship going and just making sure they're okay. So, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Melissa, tell us about your, your early years. Um, oh, how did goodness. you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very open in the question. Um, yeah. Where Where are you from, and how did um, you find your path uh, to music? Absolutely, uh, I'm from Buffalo, New York. Uh, my mom was a teacher. Uh, my dad was an air traffic controller, and I'm the oldest of three girls. And music has always been in the house. You know, I took lessons starting at five. Interrupted that because I got fired. That's a whole nother story. Picked it up again at eight and then kept going for quite a long time after that. Um, But I'd always sung in children's choirs. My mom led the children's choir at church. And my sisters and I would sing when we were doing uh, dishes and just whatever chores we had around the house. We just kind of sang whatever was popular back then and harmonize it ourselves. Um, But from the time I was five, I said, no, no, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm like, okay. So that was kind of always the narrative that I was going to be a doctor, even though I was singing and playing the piano my entire life. Um, and so when it, time, it became time to choose a college, you know, the, the, the focus of that was who has a good pre-med program, who has good medical school admissions, and, you know, I'd done the student search thing, so I was getting mail from just everywhere. Um, <laughs> it just kind of became overwhelming. And at some point, um, the great procrastinator that I am was sent to clean my room. And of course, (laughs) procrastinators start under the bed because I don't know, that's where the good stuff is. And uh, (laughs) I found a brochure that had somehow missed being opened from a little tiny college in North Carolina called Davidson. And so I opened it and it looked really exciting because I hadn't, I'd been kind of agnostic about, I knew I was going to college. I knew I'd find a great college, but I hadn't found one that just grabbed me yet, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I took it to my mom and she said, well, this looks really interesting. And she and my dad talked about it and I called the people and they flew me out for a visit, kind of like Pomona does. And it was kind of all she wrote. I mean, that was the only place I wanted to go after that. So once the, uh, the uh, acceptance came through, we were all excited about that. And I went to, North Carolina, fully expecting to be a chemistry major because I had been in a high school that allowed you to major and I'd majored in chemistry in high school and loved it, most of it. <laughs> um, senior year, we did, inor- you know, inorganic, which is 
which is um, freshman general chemistry. And I hated that because it was mostly math. And, you know, math and I had a very, shall we say, distant relationship. <laughs> if you want to say that. Socially so, distant. Conflicted. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, socially distant. We're going to stay appropriate. Um, and, you know, Davidson let you pick your classes, let you pick your schedule. We had three classes every day and we were on quarters. And I had an eight o'clock chemistry class my first year. I would do mornings. I'm like, oh. So, you know, I missed it a lot. And it was literally the same thing I just finished doing. So I didn't really have to intellectually work very hard, but I barely escaped that class. And this you know, it just wasn't going to work. So um, what had happened when we first got there to Davidson is, you know, they're big on community. It's, it's a very Pomona place. That's, a, again, another story. Um, but they have, the, they have the thing called the Freshman Talent Show. And I guess to make sure they have enough acts, they make sure that each freshman hall and each dorm had, you know, four floors. So um, would do a group thing and anybody who wanted to do a solo thing could do a solo thing. And our group thing was to uh, take the, the covers off the mattresses and to put them over our heads and tuck them in our jeans and belt them at the knee since there were 32 of us and be dancing teeth. And I'm like, ah, oh. it's I don't want to do that. Yeah, I, I know. The, the, yeah. <laughs> there was so much of that that just sounded horrendous. I, I could do it. <laughs> so my hall counselor said, well, um, you could get out of it, but you'd have to sing by yourself. And I said, sing? I don't sing whatever gives you the impression that I sing. And she said, we hear you singing across campus when you've got the window open. So, yeah, those are your options. <laughs> I didn't bring any music because I wasn't going to do music in college. I didn't have anything to accompany me. And, you know, I'd done some voice lessons in high school, but, that, you know, I, I thought I was done with that. So I said, okay, this is, yeah, I'm not going to do that too thing. So I guess I'm going to pull something out from, from high school. And the only thing I remembered was this teeny, tiny little aria, she says, dripping with sarcasm, which is um, Serena's aria from Porgy and Best by Gershwin, My Man's Gone Now. It's an enormous aria that high school people shouldn't even be thinking of singing. But, you know, he had aspirations, my voice teacher. And I didn't have an accompaniment. So it's on this giant stage, me by myself, a cappella, singing a Gershwin aria. <laughs> Surely this cannot go wrong. And when I finished, nothing. Absolute silence for about a nanosecond. And then the place kind of erupted in like wow. raucous wow. applause. And I was like, oh, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> so that was, you know, it was really fun and exciting. And of course, the uh, choir director and the voice teacher were in the audience, as apparently they did sometimes. And they like made a beeline for me and said, you've got to be in the choir and you've got to take voice lessons. I said, uh, okay. <laughs> so, I, you know, I started out as a second alto. And uh, that actually has to do with Pomona, because as it turns out, my choir director was class of 1980 super alum, uh, Frank Albinder. <laughs> Oh. And he talked about Pomona any chance he got. This was 1985, 1986, etc. So he was not too far from college himself. I didn't know that at the time, but everybody looked old to 18-year-olds. <laughs> and 
every chance he got, he talked about Pomona. It became a thing. He'd say, you know, Pomona College, and we'd all go, where the streets are paved with gold, because that was what he told us. Uh, and then well, they are, we kept they? up. See? See? <laughs> and we kept up through the years, of course. And he was just ex- so thrilled when I um, told him I'd be coming here. So that's so, how I got into music, basically. <laughs> so... Um, at what point did you realize you wanted to do this as a career? And and then what was the career you had in mind? Well, was it teaching? Once I, was you it know, embraced singing? my inner singer, uh, I thought, okay, well, people do this for a living, so I guess I'll try it. Um, I was offered a fellowship to Rice University right after, uh, during my senior year, which I ridiculously asked to defer, but that turned out to be a good thing, too. And so they let me defer it for a year. And I started my master's at Rice in 1990. And I thought, this is really nice. And, you know, people were appreciative of my singing. I got nice, you know, feedback. I won a couple of awards and competitions. And uh, it just seemed like this was going to be the thing to do. So the thing that singers do when they're finishing the end of their training is they apply for this huge round of young artist programs or what they call apprenticeship programs or gaps and the kind of the meccas for those auditions are on the coasts so you either go up to new york for a few days if you get some auditions or you go to chicago or to or to la so um for two years in december i went to new york to try to audition for things uh got as close as a semi-finalist for what is now greater my is it miami opera i forget what it's called now but it's in miami and you know it just wasn't happening which is not unusual um i wasn't didn't sound anything like I do now. Um, I was a good musician, but my voice hadn't quite gotten where it probably needed to be for an opera career. And so I thought, well, now what? <laughs> so I decided to just, you know, get a job because one needed a job to live in Houston and did some office work for a long time. I think I worked at a school of nursing and I worked at my church and I worked at Houston Grand Opera where I was also singing in the chorus. And it just, it, I thought, well, I'm a failed singer. I am having to have a day job. This is horrible. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but I was singing the, you know, the opera chorus of the third largest opera company in America and learned having a great, what I call, post-post-graduate uh, education, meeting all kinds of wonderful soloists and directors and um, people who worked in the tech department when I did my job there, which is tech secretary. And so I just generally... And slowly just sort of became known as a singer in the community. I had, uh, had a soloist job at one of the big Presbyterian churches in Houston and did some of the opera chorus and sang with some chamber groups and did recitals around. And it just kind of became a thing that this is what I do. I'm a singer and an office junk, you know, office <laughs> jockey, but mostly a singer. And uh, I was doing some teaching along the way. I had always sworn I would never teach because my mom was a teacher and she was really good at it, but it was stressful. And... I said, well, I think I think I can take the leap and become a full time professional musician slash teacher. (laughs) And uh, so that's what I did in 2004. And it was terrifying and wonderful. And then eventually, uh, I guess right before then, um, one of our new part time people at the church was teaching uh, also at Houston Baptist University. And he said, well, we need a we need a a part-time teacher. I said, really? He said, yeah, you think you could do that? I said, eh. I mean, I have a job. I said, well, we could work around your schedule. So 
well, you'd have to audition. I said, okay. And the day that I ended up auditioning for this job was September 11th, 2001 at 9 a.m. Oh, no. So, you know, my friend, my best friend was going to play for me and he was not far away, but obviously not in the same house. And as I was getting dressed, the first plane had hit and I thought, oh, well, that's curious. Well, uh, well, that's horrible. We'll just keep, you know, keep going. We had this thing today. And so as we got to the church um, where I was working at the time, the media office was right off the stairs. And so as you on the way to the music suite, they were watching and the second plane had hit. And I said, well, do we go? I mean, we don't, what's happening? Obviously, this is not an accident. And I think they had just announced as we were driving down that it was not an accident, that they closed the airspace. And it was, of course, that beautiful September day. And, you know, we're driving down the freeway and the traffic is thinning and there's nothing happening in the sky. We weren't even sure if this thing was still on, but we went. And uh, my now treasured former colleague met me at the parking lot and walked us in. She said, you know, this is all a very strange time, but, you know, if you don't mind, we'd still like to go through with the interview. And so I taught a little, I sang a little, I answered some questions. And uh, they later told me, once they hired me, yay, um, (laughs) that that had been such a healing moment to hear singing um, in the midst of this, like now, completely unprecedented, unknown time. So that was kind of how I got into teaching. And for our listeners, um, we will have a piece of Melissa for some needed healing. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Later on in the, uh, after the, uh, the interview. So look forward to that. Yay. (laughs) So, um, I'm imagining that's kind of how you found your way to higher education or you, you, that was, yeah, that was my entry into higher education. And somewhere somewhere along the way, I got convinced to go back and get my doctorate, which I did, which was actually fun in ways, not that I was doing it full time while I was also teaching full time, but um, it ended up being a great thing. Uh, Ended up not teaching there after about 11 years. And I adjuncted a few places in Texas and uh, got a job in Augusta in 2016. My and alma mater, by the way. Yay, Augusta University. How about <laughs> uh-huh. that? Tiny yeah. world with all of its many names. <laughs> go Jags. Oh, yeah. Yes, go mm-hmm. Jags. Thank you. <laughs> I have to tell them about that. Um, and so that next year, uh, Donna DiGrazia, who's, of course, our wonderful choir director, approached me actually Genevieve did I found out later it was it was Donna's uh insistence they needed they we tried to uh make a concert happen before there was something they were going to do that needed a soloist there was a conflict I couldn't do it so Genevieve said yeah we're still trying to get you on campus if we can and so they invited me out for a residency so I did a recital I did which is what you'll be hearing later um I taught you know Talked to some classes. I met with some students. Actually, sang at uh, UCC Claremont uh-huh, Church. Uh, that yeah. one, mm-hmm. and then uh, we did a flash mob of one of the songs with the Glee Club in the Frank Dining Hall. So, it was, oh, or was cool. it? Frer- I think at this point it was Frary. I didn't know that at the time. I just knew it was a dining hall, <laughs> and it was really lovely. Uh, my friend Shannon, who's playing for me, we loved. The, the city of Claremont and the atmosphere at Pomona from the moment we set foot on campus. And we both looked at each other and said, you know, if we didn't have jobs, I would love to be out here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And it turns out that Donna had um, heard, I sang with Conspirare, which is a professional choir. And we have several albums and she had heard one of them and heard me sing one of the solos on Stephen Paulus's The Road Home, which is kind of our one of our bigger hits from our earlier archive. And said, you know, she's really great. We should probably try and get her here. Uh, we don't have a position yet, but we might, you never know. And as it turns out, uh, my wonderful late colleague, uh, uh, Gwendolyn Lytle, did in fact start her phased retirement. And they did in fact start a search a whole year after I had started at Augusta University. <laughs> and so they were like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? And I had a wonderful chat, you know, fabulous. I've been so fortunate to have really great colleagues everywhere I've been. And uh, my chair was just like, you've got to go for that. I mean, that's a wonderful school. And I think it seems like a great fit. So you should apply. And I applied and I came back and did another, you know, round of interviews. And uh, here I am, second year. I love it. <laughs> so you've, you've told us um, a little bit about how frustrating it is trying to do music lessons over Zoom. Mm-hmm. Tell us what, a, what your music lessons are normally like. Uh, what are you looking for, listening for? What, mm-hmm. you know, how do you, how do you uh, work with your students? Well, mostly I try to remind them that they are their instrument. And when your instrument lies inside your body, you have to kind of approach it differently than, say, an instrument that you can walk away from at any given moment. And so we do a lot of uh, talking about being aware of, of your body and all of its and all of the ways. How are you standing? What do you feel like? What are you feeling? Where do you feel it? Um, there's a lot of talking about where they are in a room or in their body, um, what's going on in their lives, because if there's all sorts of weird stuff going on in the command center of their instrument, I'm not going to be able to get through. So we do a little little bit of getting stuff out in the air. And um, I'm a huge language nerd. So I love the fact that my art requires that I deal with language, uh, both as text and as actual articulatory processes. And so part of that body awareness, you know, if you've grown up speaking English your entire life, you've never queried, well, how do I make this sound? And do I actually need to spread my face wide for this vowel? The answer is no. And, you know, how do I make the k sound? And why does it feel so explosive? And why does it feel like it's the same place as g? Well, because they're the same consonant, just one you can hold a pitch on and one you can't. And then you know what? Mm, it's back there too. So just kind of <laughs> teaching all of, I love anatomy. This is sort of where I get to, my frustrated doctor part comes in. So, you know, explaining to them that all of this wondrous stuff that's going to come out of their mouth is actually happening in this tiny little box of cartilage and tendons and muscles that, you know, the muscles that are actually working are smaller than a quarter. So, which also freaks them out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I like to, treat the whole instrument as it were. And I like to pick wonderful repertoire for my students. It's hopefully uh, age appropriate and pedagogically appropriate. And um, I also love learning new repertoire. So I'm always ordering music and seeing what's out there. And I'm, I'm happy to dive into music. I don't know with my students if they bring me something or if I find something out in the wild. And so we learn together and they learn hopefully how to stand and project and take ownership of the space and not apologize for what's coming out of our mouths. 
Melissa, yeah. tell us about some of your students. Um, and you've described how your voice lessons were before, uh-huh. kind of the approach do you take. Um, you also teach a class, and tell us about some of the students that take your voice lessons. Sure. Well, um, I've got mostly Pomona students, but I do have students from some of the other campuses. Um, what I love about teaching in a liberal arts college is that a lot of them come to me with never having sung a note before in their lives, which can be more challenging for me, but also more fulfilling because you have to teach also, oh, wait a minute, this is how I make sound. And I have to hear it first and really hear it in my brain before I can echo it out. So that process can be probably frustrating for them. But, you know, some of them will say, well, I've, I, I just feel like I'm not making any progress. And I'll say, okay, let's just go back to lesson day one when you couldn't match pitch or when you couldn't tell a quarter note from a half note or when the idea of singing in a foreign language made you almost, you know, wet yourself. So... <laughs> Learning to honor the progress <laughs> is part of what we also do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've got a couple of really great seniors. One got to do his recital and one didn't. Um, and I can say their names, right? Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. Sure. Hey, Zach. Zach Feynman <laughs> is my uh, one of my seniors who does recital in early, uh, I guess it did in March. Uh, he's a double major with music and public policy. And so he's working on the thesis right now. It's due Friday. Go, Zach. Um, he came to me from another professor. Sometimes every once in a while, students, for whatever reason, will find the need to, to look for another teacher. And so this was our first year working together. Mm-hmm. And he's so focused. It just, you know, you tell him what to do and he kind of does it. And it's really great. Has a really, really uh, love for the French language, too. And so he picked out this beautiful cycle by Francis Poulenc called Banalité, which is banalities. So there are all these little weird poems and one of them's about taking a smoke. And, you know, part of the job of teaching is not just teaching you how to sing, but what are the aspects of performing that you have to learn? And, and what is the what are the mechanics of getting to the stage? And how do you start the song? And how do you want to deal with the audience? And what do you want the audience to feel? And how do you find that, you know, in yourself? And so... I'd say, well, we have to, you know, you do a great job on notes and learning. We also have to think about what, what story are you telling and how do you make sure that the story that you're telling is getting across to the audience? And you can think you're making a face that's coming across, but there's so many muscles in the face that you almost have to overdo without, you know, in getting in the way of the actual vocal function. Mm-hmm. And what was really uh, fulfilling is that by the time he finished his recital, he got it. He's like, you know, you've been telling me this all, you know, all year that I have to do blah, blah, blah. But I could see the difference when I started a song. And once, you know, we provide translations for vocal recitals um, and he was singing the French and he decided I'm just going to start this, the piece really quietly. It never he thought, well, I've got to sing loud. I've got to get their attention. And he decided to start this one piece very quietly. And he did. He said, Dr. G, they all just like their heads lit up. They just kind of all of a sudden they were, they were there, they were with me. I said, see, I, I do know a little, a few things. <laughs> you have to, you cannot just stand there and sing. you have to be a storyteller and you have to be a compelling storyteller and you have to use all the tools in your expressive storytelling toolbox. So that was really exciting. And I'm very proud of him. And uh, Michael, my other senior, who was going to do a great little program that included um, part of the Rukert leader of, um, Gustav Mahler, and Rooker is a 
Germanic, German romantic poet. And he actually was one of our contestants in the concerto competition, Michael Alvis, who's a history major. So not all of our really good, you know, singers are music majors, which is mm-hmm. part of the liberal arts tradition. And so he, his would have been lovely. It would have been this past weekend when we also would have done our Mozart and Brahms concert, which morning just a little bit, but, um, uh, yeah, so I've got some really lovely kids, got some wonderful first years who are just kind of figuring everything out and not really comfortable with the fact that there's not always a right answer. There's just the answer that you have mm-hmm. and um, just watching them finally go, oh, wait a minute, that works. I'm like, yeah, it works. Just go with it. <laughs> so as you were talking, uh, we could we got some glimpses of how your performance career kind of interacts with your teaching career yes how i mean how do you balance those two and do they ever conflict uh Mm -hmm. or or are they two halves two sides to the same coin i would say yes (laughs) they are two halves of the same coin and you know as a performing artist my professional activity is to perform so just like you know my writing colleagues have to make sure they're doing papers and presentations and all that. I have to make sure that I'm getting gigs and uh, hopefully doing them on a national scale. And so I think part of it means that I'm gone sometimes. And so I'll, you know, we'll schedule the makeup lessons either ahead of time or after the fact. And it's probably not easy when their uh, schedules are disrupted, but they appreciate the fact that the person that they're taking voice from is an active professional. Um, I do a lot of singing, like I said, with Conspirare, which is a, professional chamber music based out of Austin. And that's who we won the Grammy with in 2015. Um, And so that can be anywhere from a week to two weeks away. Usually if it's just a concert gig, uh, what I would have been doing as we speak right now is heading to um, Oregon, not Oregon, Washington, to do um, Considering Matthew Shepard, which is this great piece that my director wrote uh, with the University of Puget Sound. So that would have just been like three or four days gone. Um, sometimes I judge competitions. That's usually a couple of days, depending on where it sits in the week. So, um, fortunately I know almost all the time within, like, I'll know my schedule for the year or at least for the semester. And I can let them know when those absences are. And, you know, they're expected to still practice and do their work. And so, um, I, you know, I try to not do as much during the school year, but obviously sometimes, you know, that's when the concert season is. So, Um, my, everybody's really great about it and it's part of what I have to do and it keeps me going and keeps fresh ideas coming into me. So it works, I think for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned your, um, the group that you're part of, Conspirare, and, Mm -hmm. um, you, uh, won the Grammy for, in 2015 for Best Choral Group. Can you tell us about the group and can you tell us about the, the Grammy experience? Sure. It's based in Austin and it started out life as a uh, new Texas. I wasn't in it then new Texas music works, I think is what it was called. Uh, and then they decided to Craig Hella Johnson, who's the director, uh, founding director decided that we needed a name that sort of described what we did, which is we breathe together. So that's how he came up with the name conspirare, which is to breathe together. Um, and it's about 25 years old now. Mm-hmm. I've uh, been doing professional recordings since 2006, I think. Our first studio recording was done uh, on the Clarion label, and we actually recorded it at Luke Skywalker Ranch, at Skywalker Ranch, which is 
an amazing spot. We didn't actually get to see Steven Spielberg, but it's full of lavender. And it was my second time being in Northern California, I think. That makes sense. And we've done some tours. We um, sang at the 8th International World Choral Festival in um, Copenhagen. Uh, we sang at the Polychoral Festival in France, which included a trip to the National Cemetery and at Omaha Beach, where we performed the flag re- the flag lowering ceremony and sang, which mm. is a stunning experience that I will mm. never forget. Uh, and the we had done a rep of a liturgical Russian music called the Sacred Spirit of Russia, and we got the opportunity to record it with our label. Um, whose name just left me, Harmonia Mundi, Harmonia Mundi. Yes, great people, wonderful producers that we have there. And we recorded it in church in Austin, which had great acoustics, but was also a downtown church. So it's a little tricky to do that. And we were nominated for the Grammy in 2015. And a bunch of them went out to go, to go. It was not our first nomination, but it was the first time we actually won. Um, And the, you know, it's the classical part is like the pre-ceremony. So we're all just sitting there during work, just hoping we're going to get it. And they mm-hmm. call our name and we got it. It was amazing. <laughs> um, I guess it was a Sunday, so maybe we weren't working. I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it was very exciting. And <clears throat> the, I haven't seen the statuette yet because it lives in Austin. Even though I've been there several times, I keep forgetting to ask. But uh, as the ensemble members, we just get just we get certificates and everybody kept saying, so are we Grammy winners or is the how does that work? They said, you have a Grammy. I'm like, oh, I have a Grammy. OK, so and we've since done this considering Matthew Shepard thing is a, a passion, a modern day passion. It's a 90 minute choral work that our director wrote um, when Matthew Shepard was murdered in 1998. It affected him very deeply, you know, as a. As a young gay man, he was uh, conducting Chanticleer at that moment, which is a professional choral group, male choral group out of San Francisco. And it had always kind of um, stayed with him. He, he wanted to react to that in some way, some artistic way, but it never really felt like the right time. And then in 2006 or so, maybe it was 2016, 2016, the decades, uh, we did a, a project of all passion music. We did the St. Matthew Passion we did uh, some composed passions that were just for that event. And Craig decided to just kind of debut, workshop this piece that he'd written in honor of Matthew Shepard. And it was such a beautiful, affecting piece. There were moments where we had to kind of stop in the preparation of it. And eventually he took time to finish the whole thing and we recorded that. We've been touring it uh, basically since about 2008, 17, 18 uh, I think we just did our last show. Well, we were supposed to do a, one of our last shows in, in Oregon in May, and that's not happening now. Uh, but the, it's been so well-received. It's it's made up of several different musical genres, and there's a great big rollicking gospel-style chorus at the end that kind of ties up all the themes of loss and redemption and and who we are as humanity. And uh, it's a really wonderful work, and it's fortunately getting a life outside the group, too. So that was nominated for a Grammy, but it didn't win. <laughs> So you you've spoken about speaking as uh, singing as a soloist and as part of a choral group. Can you tell us about the how those two experiences interrelate? How, do they enrich each other? They do. Uh, I think there's there's two schools of thought on singers, and some people are just strictly solo musicians, 
and others of us really crave the commonality of singing in a group. Uh, it, it enhances your listening skills. And when you feel like you're part of something greater than yourself, that allows you a little bit more freedom, I think, uh, to just kind of surrender to what the music is and what the composer wants. And there's really no greater feeling than being in a room full of people all dedicated to the same purpose for just to breathe together and to make beautiful sounds. Uh, and you kind of forget, we, we have lost the art of societal communal singing. It's something that only choir geeks do or that you might do in school and never again. Uh, but Houston hosted the, uh, I think it was the Lutheran Musicians Association. Don't even remember what it's called several, several years ago. And so at one point, uh, we they put on a group, uh, one of the groups I was singing with, the Bach Society of Houston was hosting one of the events and it invite, it was like a even song kind of thing. And that room holds about 300 people and every single person in that room was a musician. So when we're singing the hymns, there are 300 people <laughs> singing together loudly, lustily. Every time there's a breath mark, 300 people are breathing together and you know, I just, I was almost overcome because you just don't experience that very often. And it was just such a testament to the power of communal song, which I really wish we would get back to. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I don't really do anything substantively different as a, as a solo singer. Obviously, I'm the one in charge of the musical decisions, but um, it's, to me, it's kind of just, again, two halves of the same thing. Melissa, you shared um, a few a few of the memorable performances that you've had as part of Conspirare. What are some of your favorite children uh, or your favorite uh, or most memorable performances as a soloist? Oh, goodness. Uh, let's see. <laughs> uh, in 2000, I think it was 2001. I think it was actually, it was, it was 2001, November. Um, I sang with the Houston Ballet. They toured to Moscow. And we performed in the Bolshoi Theater, where the fringe is taller than I am. And so even though I was in the pit, just to kind of be in that super historic place, uh, singing some incredible music by Richard Wagner was uh, kind of spine tingling. Um, I have been on a couple of tours with various churches uh, and the church I sang with in Houston for 18 years, uh, First Presbyterian Church of Houston decided to do a tour to the Holy Land uh, to celebrate Pentecost, which is considered the birthday of the church in 2000. So they said, we're going to do the 2000th birthday of the church in the birthplace of the church. And so they asked if I would go along to sing. Mm -hmm. I said, well, how would that work? And I said, well, you know, we'll, we're going to all these, you know, significant places and you'll sing whatever you feel like comes to mind. I said, okay. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we're, well, no pressure. <laughs> Yeah. We were in Mary's church, which is in Nazareth, and uh, they asked me to sing, and I did Ave Maria, which is the Marian hymn of, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou among women. And again, you know, it's a cappella, but uh, to sing a song that was dedicated to the person to in whose church we were standing was another one of those goosebump experiences. Um there's a piece by Gustav Mahler. It's actually a symphony. It's the symphony number four. And the fourth movement is a, a solo and a solo soprano and orchestra. 
and it's a text from Des Knaben Wunderhorn, which is an ethno, ethnomusicological collection of German folk tales and folk stories. And so this is all about the heavenly life and how the angels will sing and which, one, which saints will bake the bread and who will chase the fish in the little river. And uh, the singing there is the most beautiful you've ever heard. And it's always been one of my favorite pieces, even just from being a student and studying it, uh, you know, a, a music history student and studying it. And uh, it has been, there's the full symphonic version, which I'm bucket list wanting to do if anybody out there is ready to make that happen. Um, but there's a reduced chamber version of that that I've done several times with several groups. And the, the orchestration, the way the different instruments come together to kind of just create this vision, a child's vision of heaven is just really just kind of stunning and, and gives you little tingles at the corners of your spine. So. So you mentioned uh, bucket list. Um, is there a, a certain musical milestone out there that you'd still like to achieve? Well, I would love to do the Verdi Requiem. And my joke is that he wrote that for eight sopranos, but only assigned it to one. Um, <laughs> and so there's a couple of parts that I think I could do really well. And there's a couple of parts that are a little bit challenging. But I think, yes, before I die or stop singing, uh, I would love to sing Verdi's Requiem, and uh, I would also love to do Orff's Carmina Burana, which are uh, settings of really kind of body and earthly poems from, I think, ninth century hermits or something like that. And that's got a gorgeous soprano part that just kind of sails up into the stratosphere, which is, again, not my greatest place, I think, but, you know, I can do it when I've had wine. <laughs> so it works for singing too. Exactly. <laughs> do you ever what? have any? Oh, I'm going to quick follow. Do you ever have mm -hmm. any stage fright um, about those those difficult moments, or when you're caught up in it, do you just it just flow? You just have to go. I mean, you can't think about all the horrible things that could happen because. <laughs> There's just so many matters of coordination and balance that have to happen at exactly the right time and your brain has to be engaged. So sure, there are disasters that happen, but, and I always have a healthy amount of respect for those impending disasters that I'm a little nervous before every performance. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, I, fortunately it was in a friendly group, but I uh, was singing a Messiah sing-along that I'd done for years and years and years and had been singing Rejoice Greatly, which you could probably wake me up at three in the morning and I could sing perfectly. But the orchestra played this little intro and they kept playing and the conductor kind of looked at me and I kind of looked at him and I said, was that me? <laughs> so, you know, if you're going to have a giant disaster like that, it should be in a room full of people who love you. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Around that theme, um, any advice for um, prospective students or students who may be thinking about music as, as their major or as or just to explore music in general? You know, I think it's one of the most appropriate and fulfilling majors that you could have. People say, well, you know, what are you going to do with that? Well, you know, it teaches you how to work with people. It teaches you how to have confidence when you have to speak in front of people. It teaches you to problem solve uh, and all, you know, looking, linking all of the various historical aspects of music to the performance of music. It's just an opportunity for, you know, synthesized learning, uh, non-siloed learning. And I think anybody should give it a shot uh, we would love to have you. A lot of people think they can't sing, but there are only a few people who truly should not sing. And I've only taught one of them and had to say, we need to not do this, but we can start you anywhere. Uh, if you like history, if you like math, because there's a lot of intricacies of rhythm, 
Um, it's very fulfilling, even you know, instrumentally, musically. If you want to be a composer, we've, we've got you covered. So come check us out. So um, a reminder to our listeners, if you want to hear Melissa sing, stick around after we sign off. Uh, Melissa, would you tell us a little bit about what they're going to hear? Sure. This is from my 2017 recital called Chiaro Scuro, or Light and Dark in Art Songs. And the three songs are from um, Mendelssohn, who's one of my favorite composers, and it's called The First Violet. It's a song about this guy who sees the first violet and he's all full of love and then the violet dies and he hopes he never has to be alone again. Uh, and then a rage aria from Mozart, a little two-minute song called Als Luise die Briefe ihres ungetreuen Liebhabers verbrannt. And the title is longer than the song, I think. <laughs> she's, Louise is very upset with her lover who is, has uh, betrayed her and she's burning his letters. And then the last one is one of my favorite little cute songs by Hugo Wolf called Ich habin Penna einen Liebsten wohnen, which means I have a lover and Penna. But then she goes on to say, and I have some in Marema, and I have some in Ancona, and Viterbo, and Casentino, and where I live, and Magione, La Fratta, and I have 10 of them in Castiglione for 22 lovers. Very, very liberated for the time. Or this time. Or this or time. time. I say yep. go for it. <laughs> so on that note, um, literally, we're going to wrap this up. Um, we've been talking with American soprano Melissa Givens, assistant professor of music at Pomona. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you so much. Thank you. Fun. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast. Stay tuned for Melissa's recording and stay safe. And until next time. <laughs>